Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me again today as we study yet another amazing development in fulfilling prophecy. I can hardly believe we're nearing the maturing of so many key issues in our own times, and it's happening at a very rapid pace. Yet it is happening, and it is vitally important that we yield our lives to Jesus so that He can perform His work of transformation in our hearts and lives so that we won't be caught unawares and unready when the crisis finally comes. All things earthly are building up to the final battle. Christ is the victor at the cross for us, so that He can stamp His image on us, His last generation, and expose us to the full onslaught of Satan's temptations in His last gasp to grab even the last remnant into His deadly designs. So many signs indicate the nearness of the coming of Christ, and I don't know how long we have, but we must work while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. Many lost souls need what you know. The world changed on 9-11-2001. It paved the way for the destruction of the U.S. Constitution and the constitutions of other Western nations. This was essential so that papal principles of the new world order can be implemented. There can never be a universal Sunday law if Western constitutions and the U.S. Constitution in particular are still active and protecting the religious minorities. Over the last decade and a half, the steady and rapid erosion of these bulwarks of freedom have left them almost pointless. They have been chipped away and undermined by presidents, prime ministers, and other Western leaders, and yet God's people are still largely asleep. They think tomorrow will be the same as today, but if you're paying attention, you can see that our world is preparing for a very different tomorrow. It is preparing for the final conflict between the forces of good and evil, and that's changing everything. Secularism in the more recent times has also changed the world as Western nations have dramatically turned their backs on God's law and turned further away from the principles of freedom. Gay rights are now very strong in most Western nations, and their priorities are far different from yours and from God's for that matter. As Western nations move closer to the precipice of God's judgments, just like Sodom, most people are not aware of the visitation of the mighty angels upon the cities and nations of the world. I don't know how long the mercy of God will prevail. I think it is ironic that Pope Francis has proclaimed a year of jubilee in the name of mercy, a false and illusionary mercy. But at some point, God will give permission to the angels of destruction to wreak havoc upon the wicked cities of the world. I urge you to find another place to live than in the big cities. They're designed and destined for destruction. And while you still can, if you live in a city, this would be the time to make the move and follow God's counsel. And now it's time for the next big change. The papacy is rising to sit as a queen over the whole earth. She's been aiming at this for a long, long time. 
Over more than two centuries, she has gradually worked herself into popularity and power, and now the nations cannot do what they want without considering the opinions and manipulations of Rome. And that is what our lesson is about today. On a global scale, nations now look to Rome for guidance, and Rome is obliging them and providing it. For more than two centuries, the Holy See has been working, planning, and engineering for this day. She has been doing all in her power to regain control of the world and undo all that Protestantism has done. The stakes have never been so high. The great controversy between Christ and Satan has nearly reached its peak. The whole world is at stake, and every man, woman, and child on the planet will be confronted with a question. Will they be loyal to God? Or to man. There's one issue that the papacy is using to establish herself as the moral guide of the world. Until recently, it was merely a political and economic issue, but now that the Pope has weighed in on the crisis, it has taken on a moral and religious dimension that stunningly propels the Pope to the top of the new world order as its guide. The whole thing has been orchestrated by Rome itself in collaboration with one key nation, the United States of America. Your family and friends need to realize that world events are about to take on a new and dramatic direction directly where the Bible says they will go. What kind of world should we expect to arise? What will the merchants of the earth and the religious leaders and the kings of the earth be doing in a few more years? What will happen to God's people in the new globalization? These are some of the questions we'll try to address today in my message. But before we begin, let me urge you to get your copy of our 12-part, six-DVD set called Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order. It's only $69.99 plus 10% postage for U.S. and Australian subscribers and 20% postage for all others. You won't want to miss these excellent presentations that were done at Secrets Unsealed. Pastor Bohr asked me to come to their studios in Fresno, California, and record this series so that you can watch these important messages. This compelling series will inspire and strengthen you. Order extra sets for your family and friends, too. Also, make sure that you join our free email list for our daily briefings on fulfilling prophecy, if you haven't already. One briefing almost five days a week will come to your inbox so that you can start or end your day thinking about the unfolding drama and the second coming of Christ. Also, we're in need of volunteers again with building skills to help with renovations at both of our health retreats in Australia, at Highwood Health Retreat and Amaru Water Gardens Health Retreat. Soon we will start renovations of the school building at Highwood. We're planning to start a medical missionary training program in 2017, and we need that building ready to go. We will install offices and redesign some other rooms. That project will start very soon, so let us know if you can come and help. And as soon as we're ready at Amaru Water Gardens in the next few months or weeks, we will install offices, therapy rooms, doctor's offices, and other amenities to start the health retreat in South Australia. So if you're able to help in 2016 and you have building skills, please contact us. You have to be from a country that has electronic visas for visitors to Australia, such as the United States, Canada, Europe, Scandinavia, New Zealand, etc. We are well into the new year of 2016, and it will no doubt have a huge influence on the way you live your life. You can never go back to the good old days. They're gone forever. 
Now we must think about our own eternal destiny like never before. Christ will stand by your side in these troublous times ahead if you are rooted and grounded in Him. Being in Christ means that you live so much in harmony with Him that He can trust you with His Holy Spirit in latter rain power. So as we begin, let us bow our heads in prayer and ask for the precious influence of the Holy Spirit on us today as we study. Our Father in heaven, we sense the importance of the hour. We sense that our world is changing in dramatic ways and it will never be as simple and carefree as it once was. Now huge issues impose their weight upon us and we cannot hide from them. Yet you have promised to hide your people in the secret place of the Most High. Oh God, as we think about our times and the importance of living for Christ, I pray that we will understand like never before. Please send your Holy Spirit to enlighten and inspire us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, and let us start with a little Bible study. These verses will tell us something about those who will be living in the last days. Beginning with verse verse 1, we read, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes around about, and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from afar, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. Friends, these verses are talking about the latter rain. In these verses is the secret of the power of God's people in the last days. As darkness, even gross darkness, covers the earth, God's people will arise and shine under the strength and influence of the Holy Spirit. At that very time when Satan's power is most manifest, at the very time when the people of the earth are in deep, deep spiritual darkness and blindness, at the moment when there is a hopelessness and despair, God's people will arise shine like the brightness of the noonday. People in darkness will see them and be drawn to them to ask what they know. How do they have such happiness and peace? When they understand the message that God has given to them, something dramatic will happen. The forces of the Gentiles shall come to thee. That's talking about the wealth of the Gentiles. If you look in your margin, you'll see that is what it's being referred to. They will be moved upon by the Holy Ghost to help God's cause with their assets and the wealth of their influence. They will give of their resources to God's people to finish the work that God must complete. You see, my friends, as the darkness gets deeper and as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people, they will become the center of attention. The contrast will be stark. Those who have not known Christ, those that have not had the full light, will now see clearly. The scales will come off their eyes and they'll see things they've never seen before. 
They will see the glorious Bible truth that has escaped them. Hoarded wealth will now be loosened and they will pour their wealth upon those that they see are truly working with God. Many will come weeping to God's people, telling them that they've never been so impressed by the light before and they now have nothing holding them back. No family ties, no social pressure, no work obligations will keep them from their duty to work for God and get their resources into God's work. These verses are talking only about those whom God can trust with His resources. Only those who are surrendered and humble before Christ, whose lives are totally dedicated to His service and who will use those resources correctly, can be recipients of those gifts. Do you want to be faithful so that your light will arise and shine upon the Gentiles? Now think about this. This very attention upon God's people, the light, honor, and glory, will bring heavy persecution upon them. Satan will fight the light with all his might. He will not yield the ground easily, yet Christ will stand by the side of his people to defend them and overthrow the enemy. They will be strengthened by his presence because they love him and they love his law. Oh, friends, what a privilege to live in Christ. I need the Holy Spirit to teach me and guide me every day, and I hope you sense this need too, my friends. Just imagine what God is going to do. The work that has languished and struggled for so many years will suddenly be able to move forward. And it will win many souls. It will miraculously open doors of opportunity to reach the higher classes that will then pour themselves into God's work. Like Nicodemus, once they understand the truth for this time, they will sacrifice all they have in the service of Christ to win souls, to have a place in the kingdom of God. And that's what Isaiah 60 is talking about. Oh, friends, I don't know about you, but I want a place in God's kingdom more than ever. If you're listening to this message today, please surrender yourself to God. Surrender all you have to His cause. I've done that myself. I want to be an an example of self-surrender and self-denial. May God help us all, is my prayer. The darkness is getting deeper. Have you noticed? As sin abounds, the spiritual blindness of the world is becoming more dense and determined. Everywhere you look, there's wickedness and evil. Men's hearts are continually pursuing corruption and violence. It seems relentless. Every thought and imagination of his heart is only evil continually. Yet God has a few faithful people seeking his righteousness and his grace to live in harmony with his law. Most people have rejected God's law. They're being led by the papal power that is foremost in turning its back on God's law, particularly the fourth commandment, but it is by no means the only commandment. To many people, the rise of the papacy to geopolitical heights is a mystery. They're confused about it. How can a corrupt organization with so many scandals be so popular and so well-received? After all, though Rome has covered with apologies the iniquities of her past, She is still the same corrupt organization. They cannot understand or discern this, nor can they understand how the Vatican can continue to rise to new heights each day. But students of Bible prophecy understand these things. The Bible tells us that Rome is to be cut down. See Revelation 18, verse 7. That means she has to rise. 
God allows her to reach the pinnacle in order to expose her wickedness and demonstrate the contrast between loyalty to her versus loyalty to God. The kings and merchants of the earth are corrupt themselves, and in Rome they have found an ally. The Bible makes this very clear, doesn't it? The kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the merchants of the earth have been made rich by her, the Bible says in Revelation 18. But these kings and merchants don't want to know what the consequences are of their illicit relationship with the Vatican. They are happy to continue on as before, benefiting by their collaboration as much as ever. As month after month has gone by and year after year has passed into eternity, they've gotten closer and closer to Rome. Rome now manipulates and even controls them in some cases. At the same time, Rome has wrapped them in a web of entanglement, deception, and manipulation so that they cannot escape her power, politically, economically, or socially. Meanwhile, Rome calls for peace, but she does not call for breaking away from sin. Rome calls for helping the poor, which means to give them money, but she does not call for humanity to follow the law of God. In the name of Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the saints, she calls on them to break God's law and live in opposition to the God of heaven. This is serious, my friends. The world is headed for a showdown. But we are told in Scripture that Rome will ascend to become the queen of the earth. Revelation 18, verse 7 discusses why Rome is going to be punished. The reason is, is because she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. And when she does, watch out. Persecution will come upon God's people. Revelation 13 verse 7 says that it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Notice the inclusive language in the word all. If Rome is going to have power over all kindreds, that's all families, the most intimate of relationships, and all tongues, that's culture and social networks, and all nations, that's political power, she must have universal power. How does she get that power? Rome identifies with the poor and helpless, which is most of the world's population. She calls on nations to help the poor, which endears vast numbers to Rome. But the papacy is not going to have partial power. She will have so much power that she will be able to overcome the saints. This is talking about global power. Rome is predicted in Scripture to rise to ultimate global control, and the nations will fanatically follow her and do her bidding and bring everyone to her feet to overcome means to remove their cherished liberties. Listen to this statement from Great Controversy, page 565. But Romanism as a system is no more in harmony with the gospel of Christ now than at any former period in her history. The Protestant churches are in great darkness, or they would discern the signs of the times. The Roman church is far-reaching in her plans and modes of operation, she is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world, to reestablish persecution, and to undo all that Protestantism has done. Catholicism is gaining ground on every side. Did you hear that? Rome is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power. That's important. 
We need to watch that carefully. Rome is using political, educational, religious, and economic tools. She's using the deceptive Jesuits, the ecumenical movement, the emerging church movement, and a host of other tools in her toolbox that she's employing to increase her power. And now she is almost there, almost at the peak. She knows there is coming a fierce and determined conflict for the control of the whole world. The stakes are enormous. Did you notice that it is not just talking about Europe, which was once her empire? It was called the Holy Roman Empire in the Dark Ages, meaning that the church ruled the state. But the Vatican is pursuing something much bigger today. The Catholic Church is angling to rule the whole world in a new global Holy Roman Empire. And because the Bible uses inclusive language to describe it, it confirms that all people and all nations will be involved. Everyone on the planet will come under this new world order of control. Your nation will give up its sovereignty. Your land will no longer be your land. Your nation will no longer be your nation. It will belong to Rome. And Rome will be its moral guide. The UN will be its political arm, and the United States will be foremost among the nation-states of the world in giving homage to the Pope and the papacy and enforcing her decrees and aims. The stunning reality is that every man, woman, and child on the planet will have to make a decision. Will they go live under the power of the queen of the new world order, or will they hew their own course and follow the Bible? Friends, I hope you're planting your feet solidly on Scripture. You'll be up against incredible forces that only the sure word of God can withstand. So you have to know and follow your Bible if you plan to survive. Jesus said to the devil, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4, verse 4. These words apply to all the true followers of Christ in every age, but especially in the last days. Pope Francis believes that all the world must come under the moral influence of Rome and support the common good. To support the common good means that you must give up some of your individual sovereignty or individualism or freedom in the interest of providing the good for everyone. Ultimately, under the pressure of huge disasters and war, it means that you will have to give up your convictions like the Seventh-day Sabbath or other distinctive beliefs so that there can be solidarity in society for the good of all. The Pope believes he has but a short time to accomplish this on a global scale and is bending every effort to place the papacy at the head of the nations as the moral guide of the world. He collaborates with the nations and their leaders to accomplish this. There are many developments that have led us to the point where the Pope can now push for the Catholic Church to be the moral guide of the world. Previous popes have believed this and have worked for this, but Pope Francis has actually nearly accomplished it. So how will the Pope rise to become the queen of the earth? Friends, this is not easy, particularly when the angels of heaven are holding back the winds of strife and they have many tools in their toolboxes that they can use to prevent it. And since he's working against the king of kings, he has to overcome amazing odds. In fact, the Catholic Church can only achieve the status of queen of the earth if Christ gives her permission. He's doing that, my friends. We can see it. Look what's happened with the ecumenical movement. All the churches almost are engaged in it with Rome. 
One by one, Rome has picked them off until there are only a few remnants left of those true Protestants that oppose papal supremacy. The ecumenical movement is nearly mature. Look at the violence in the world through crime, war, injustice, etc. It has reached epic proportions and there is a sense of desperation and even hopelessness among many. Terrorism is rampant. Strife is constant, and Rome continually inserts herself as the global peacemaker in major conflicts. She calls for peace, giving her enormous credibility with the average person, and by her emphasis on peace, Rome is leading them step by step away from God's principles and His law. This was predicted in Daniel 8.25, which says that by peace He shall destroy many. And it will only bring more violence... Satan stirs the passions of the soul. He loves war. His agents will do the same. Popes have fomented wars for centuries. Do you think they have changed? Look also at the near global collaboration between the rulers of the nations and the papacy. And while collaboration with the United States is key to the rise of papal power, it is not the only front. The leaders of Europe, the leaders of Africa, the leaders of Asia and Oceania must also come along for the success of papal projects in its quest to become queen of the earth. With these key developments and many more already in place, the Pope sees that his time has come to press for Rome to become the recognized moral leader of the world. He intends to control the world and he found an issue by which to do it. If he has the power to get all the nations of the world to agree on something, he will have demonstrated his preeminence above them. Climate change is a persistent theme as world weather patterns are changing, ecosystems are deeply stressed, and essential natural resources are being polluted. Climate change is a universal global issue, and Pope Francis has placed himself in the middle of it with a powerful moral message that has taken the climate change issue to another level. After a long series of climate change summits that have failed to yield an agreement, the Pope saw his opportunity to establish a supranational world authority to guide the nations in addressing climate change and reduce the global carbon footprint. And he used his moral pulpit to do it. The Pope will sit atop the new global bureaucracy. The Pope has taken the propaganda campaign on climate change out of the hands of scientists and has orchestrated the first global agreement of its kind on the basis of its morality, not on a scientific or political basis alone. Political solutions haven't worked in the climate change summit after climate change summit. Scientific alarmism hasn't convinced the vast majority of the world's citizens. Disappointment after disappointment at the many climate change summits have left many with little hope of ever coming to an agreement that works in order to save the planet. Pope Francis came upon climate change like a jet engine in full power. Pope Francis is immensely popular. He's the people's pope, and by his bully pulpit, he convinced a large portion of the world's citizens that climate change is now an important issue. He influenced national leaders through their people, and once the masses now sense a moral imperative to deal with climate change, the Pope knew that he could get them and their leaders to make a deal at the Climate Change Summit in Paris in December of 2015. And global leaders in Paris were in full force. 
From U.S. President Barack Obama to Chinese President Xi Jinping, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, Unko Sazana Dlamini Zums, head of the African Union Commission, Brazil President Dilma Rousseff, South African President Jacob Zuma, Russian President Vladimir Putin, Masuma Ebitar, Iran's Vice President, Al Gore, former U.S. Vice President, Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, arguably the most powerful woman in Europe, British Prime Minister David Cameron, Charles George, Prince of Wales, and many government ministers. There were more than 150 world leaders there, which made it the largest diplomatic meeting in France since 1948. It was also a huge meeting with 45,000 participants from 195 nations, all of them anticipating something different from previous climate change summits. They were all there to help the Pope, whether they knew it or not, and bring about the first ever international agreement to fight climate change. But the Pope's vision goes beyond climate change. He knew that if he could orchestrate a climate agreement after so many years of failure, he would score a major victory for the church and place the church and its moral message at the center of influence of the whole world. This was the crown jewel. This was the real reason for his push to get an agreement in Paris. He wants to guide the world morally, not just in climate change, but in every other area as well. The Climate Change Summit was a useful and powerful tool to establish the papacy as the global broker and dealmaker. And Pope Francis was prepared to do what he had to do to pressure world leaders to support the agreement. The Pope embarked on an unprecedented campaign leading up to the climate change summit in Paris, and his energy and power were on full display for anyone that was watching. We need to understand this because for the first time in history, a record number of nations gathered together and negotiated and navigated an historic agreement that places them all under a global authority. The United Nations, guided by Pope Francis himself, to address a global issue that affected them all. First, the Pope began by writing an encyclical that laid out a compelling moral argument in favor of protecting the climate. He did not get into the arguments on how much human activity has caused the climate to change. He took the moral ground and said that humans have a responsibility to do something about it. The Pope had laid a strong foundation by arguing powerfully over the first couple of years of his pontificate for wealth redistribution and the need to care for the vulnerable. During his travels, he openly denounced unbridled capitalism as a disease like cancer that must be eradicated. He called for rich nations to help poor nations to mitigate the effects of poverty. And while preparing the encyclical, he called a conference at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences in April of 2015 that focused on the relationships connecting poverty, economic development, and climate change. The meeting included presentations and discussions by scientists, religious leaders, and economists from around the world. Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations, delivered the keynote address. Then on June 18, 2015, Francis published the encyclical Laudato Si. He criticized the structurally perverse global economic system and argued that a global authority, presumably with the power to compel compliance, was needed to help the nations limit climate change. He argued that climate change would affect every man, woman, and child on the planet, especially the most poor. 
which live in the most vulnerable places on the planet. He even advocated a day of rest for nature, which he identified as Sunday, and he tied Sunday worship of the Eucharist in as part of the way in which to address climate change. And while many people are not going to accept the papal worship claims just quite yet, he put it in the encyclical so that future generations, even future popes, can eventually respond to that segment. In fact, this is the principal object and the reason for the papal desire for global power, to bring about a Sunday law, in part to benefit the planet. There are even those that suggested that. One group is trying to get everyone to take one day a week rest and let the planet have a Sabbath. It would save, they say, 15% a year in greenhouse gases. That would take seven years to eliminate the need for billions in wealth redistribution. The encyclical was addressed not only to Catholics, but also to everyone on the planet. It was publicized in advance, and Cardinal Peter Turkson, who helped the Pope draft the document, gave interviews to the press before its release. This created much anticipation in the minds of the global public. And when the encyclical was finally released, it created interest worldwide and made a huge impact on the thinking of national leaders the world over. The Pope also gave a copy of Laudato Si to Bolivian President Evo Morales when he visited Bolivia. And while in Ecuador, he called on the nation to help protect the Amazon rainforests, which have been the subject of much debate and stressed the importance of sustainable and equal development. Then to keep up the pressure on world leaders to act in December and promote the encyclical further, Pope Francis invited 60 big city mayors from around the world to the Vatican barely a month later to sign a declaration about protecting the environment. No doubt virtually all of them were Catholic. It was the photo op of a lifetime for most of the mayors who flocked to the two-day conference. Many of them announced new measures to fight global warming locally and bask in the Pope Francis' ecological star power. Climate change is real, they said. The mayors had, in fact, taken their task very seriously. After all, urban areas are the prime causes of environmental pollution, accounting for 75% of human carbon emissions. Mayor after mayor pled for action, some by giving anecdotes of their own experience with natural catastrophes worsened by environmental degradation. Others spoke of social emergencies made worse by climate change. The Pope and the mayors each signed a declaration stating that human-induced climate change is a scientific reality and its effective control is a moral imperative for humanity. Francis told the gathering, you are the conscience of humanity. Cities are huge climate busters and are key to reducing global warming. We have a very powerful opposition that, at least in my country, spends billions on trying to keep from office people such as yourselves and elect troglodytes and other deniers of the obvious science, said California Governor Jerry Brown to a rousing applause. Brown, who was also in attendance at the conference, is a former Jesuit seminarian. Many of the mayors made individual pleas for the world to change its ways. For instance, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that New York City is going to reduce its emissions by 40% by 2030. He urged other cities to follow suit, saying that Pope Francis is the most powerful voice on the planet for those who have no voice. He said His Holiness did not convene us here to ratify the status quo, but in fact to upend it, he said.
it's increasingly clear that we, the local leaders of the world, have many tools, more than we may have in fact realized, and we must use them boldly as our national governments hesitate. He urged that the mayors take every possible measure to reduce carbon emissions in the coming months to encourage national leaders to take bold action in Paris. De Blasio is a founding member of an alliance of world cities that have committed to reducing emissions by 80% by 2050 or sooner. San Francisco Mayor Edwin Lee announced that his city would complete the transition of its municipal fleet of fire trucks, buses and trucks from petroleum diesel to renewable energy sources by the end of this year. Stockholm Mayor Karen Wangard said that Paris climate negotiators must dare to push the boundaries and exclude fossil fuels as an option and reward solutions that are long-term, sustainable, and renewable. She is aiming to make Stockholm, the Swedish capital, fossil fuel-free by 2040. The climax of the meeting was an audience with Pope Francis, who has become a hero of the environmental movement. Francis told the gathering that he had a lot of hope that the Paris negotiations would succeed. The Vatican Conference also discussed the UN's new sustainable development goals that were finalized later in September of 2015. Of course, the Vatican's erudite contribution doesn't add much to the scientific debate, but it has a great media power, said Enrico Brugnoli, director of the Department of Earth System Science and Environmental Technologies at Italy's National Research Council. No politician can completely ignore it, he added. And since the mayors are local leaders, many people saw the conference as Francis' commitment to reaching out to ordinary people. It also shows just how strategic Pope Francis was in pushing for radical changes to the way the world does its business. Furthermore, the Pope's encyclical called for ordinary people to press for a grassroots transformation of politics, economics, and individual lifestyles to confront environmental de degradation. The Vatican wants to create proximity between what the Pope says and people's everyday life, said Paolo Rodari, a Vatican expert with the Italian daily newspaper La Repubblica. And Alberto Maloney, a liberal scholar and Vatican historian, said the aim of the conference was to call for action for mayors, for those who are really close to ordinary people, and make them responsible as well. We need a moral dimension to the climate change debate, and Pope Francis is providing that, Mr. Brown said. That would add weight and force to the cause of dealing with climate change effectively. Concluding his speech to the mayors, the Pope said, I have great hopes for the Paris summit in December. I have great hopes that a fundamental agreement is reached and that the United Nations takes a strong stand on climate change. Pope Francis' views gained traction and momentum with a broad cross-section of society before the Paris conference in December, including Nobel laureates, faith leaders, United Nations, and law enforcement. Pope Francis' campaign rallied a global movement in support of the environment and his aim to be the moral guide of the nations. Then the Pope visited the United States, where he and U.S. President Barack Obama have common views concerning the protection of the climate. During his White House speech, President Obama said, among other things, Holy Father, you remind us that we have a sacred obligation to protect our planet, God's magnificent gift to us. 
We support your call to all world leaders to support the communities most vulnerable to changing climate and to come together to preserve our precious world for future generations. The Pope responded in kind by saying, Mr. President, I find it encouraging that you are proposing an initiative for reducing air pollution. Accepting the urgency, it seems clear to me also that climate change is a problem which can no longer be left to our future generations. When it comes to the care of our common home, we are living at a critical moment in history. We still have time to make the change needed to bring about sustainable and integral development, for we know that things can change. Then when the Pope spoke before the United Nations General Assembly for the opening of their 70th anniversary session, which also coincidentally coincided with the beginning of a UN conference on sustainable development, he brought it up again, powerfully arguing that even the environment has rights. First, he said, because we human beings are part of the environment. Any harm done to the environment, therefore, is harm done to humanity. Second, he added, because every creature, particularly a living creature, has an intrinsic value in its existence, its life, its beauty, its interdependence with other creatures. We Christians, together with other monotheistic religions, believe that the universe is the fruit of a loving decision by the Creator who, who permits man respectfully to use creation for the good of his fellow men and for the glory of the Creator. He's not authorized to abuse it much less to destroy it. In all religions, the environment is a fundamental good. Consequently, the defense of the environment and the fight against exclusion, he said, demand that we recognize a moral law written into human nature itself. His language was a winning formula for politicians the world over. President Obama spoke to the United Nations in September as well, urging the nations of the world that the Pope's message is a moral calling to all of them. The Obama administration collaborated with the Pope and made environmental protection a bread and butter issue. The United States did a number of things that would prepare for and strengthen its own stature and arguments at the summit in favor of an agreement. For instance, EPA Administrator, Roman Catholic Gina McCarthy, went on the road with the Pope's message, speaking at two flagship Catholic universities, Jesuit-run Georgetown University and the University of Notre Dame. She also co-authored an op-ed with Blaise Kupich, Pope Francis' hand-picked Archbishop of Chicago, in which they said that Americans had a moral obligation to act on the climate. President Obama claimed credit for the United States in negotiating the agreement, having shuttled his Secretary of State John Kerry between China and India last year by signing a climate change deal to limit greenhouse gases with China and by adding substantially stronger carbon emissions goals for U.S. coal plants through the Environmental Protection Agency. The collaboration between the two top emitters of carbon sent a strong message to the conference in Paris as well and dense smog in and around major cities of Europe and China and the United States offered additional incentive for the climate negotiators in Paris. Collaboration between China and the United States was seen by many as absolutely essential to getting an agreement in Paris. As long as policymakers in Washington and Beijing didn't put their political capital behind the adoption of ambitious carbon emission capping targets, the laudable efforts of other G20 governments often remained in the realm of pious wishes, said the World Pensions Council. 
Signing an agreement on emissions with China in 2014 was very important in sending the right message to Paris. The United States could not have achieved a global agreement without the help of the Pope and the Catholic Church. But as Time magazine said, there is a new player in town this year who could change everything, Pope Francis. But the Pope could not have likely achieved an agreement in Paris without the help of the United States either. However, with the two collaborating together, just as the Bible predicted they would in Revelation 13, they finally succeeded. Because of the Pope's popularity, his message on climate change gives domestic and global leaders political cover to take new actions to address climate issues. And on September 11, House Republicans did just that, writing a resolution citing the Pope in their call for the Republican Party to get serious about climate change. But Pope Francis wasn't finished with his efforts to get an agreement. Just before the Paris conference, Francis said it would be sad, and I dare say even catastrophic, were particular interests to prevail over the common good and lead to manipulating information in order to protect their own plans and projects. Then on the first day of the conference, Francis said, I am not sure, but I can say to you, now or never. Every year the problems are getting worse. We are at the limits. If I may use a strong word, I would say that we are at the limits of suicide. Though Paris banned demonstrations and marches in the wake of the terrorist attacks, activists put 20,000 pairs of shoes in the Place de la République to symbolize absent marchers on the eve of the summit. Pope Francis sent a pair of his own shoes, too, so that he could show solidarity with the protesters against climate change. And incidentally, Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the United Nations, followed suit and sent a pair of jogging shoes as well. Pope Francis laid the groundwork for action in Paris and pointed the way forward. He has changed the discussion. Instead of happening from above, it's now happening from below by popular demand in response to the papal appeal. Francis has given the leaders gathered in Paris the vision and the space to make change, said Time magazine. And they could not resist his powerful moral voice. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, echoing the Pope at the conference, said... We have never faced such a test. Political momentum like this may not come again. You have the power to secure the well-being of this and succeeding generations. The time for brinkmanship is over. He further describes COP21 as a pivotal moment for your countries, your people, and our common home, your planet. Let me be clear, he said, the fate of the Paris Agreement rests with you. The future of our planet is in your hands. We cannot afford indecision. You have the moral and political responsibility for this world. History is calling. I urge you to answer with courage and vision. Those grand-sounding words were designed to encourage a deal in response to the papal moral leadership and to help poor nations in decarbonization. But not only did the Pope get the nations to work together on climate change, he also brought the religious world in collaboration in as well. So much so that even the leader of the World Council of Churches, Reverend Dr. Olaf Fiske Tvit, spoke at the conference representing the voice of the poorest communities who are worst affected by climate change. In his speech to the conference in Paris, Tvit echoed Pope Francis once again, 
We who represent faith-based communities around the world, Tavit said, look to you in these days. COP21 must offer clear signals and regulations to drastically reduce the carbon emissions from human-based activity. You can. We also believe that you can put the interests of the whole of humanity and creation before your own national interests. We believe that you will serve the world by showing the best of human creativity and capacity. Following the Paris Climate Conference, Tavit was interviewed by Vatican Radio. Tavit said the agreement in Paris is an important symbol that politicians, business leaders, researchers, the civil sector, and the religious communities now need to speak the same language to press for monitoring and implementation. In other words, the whole world is involved, including business and economy, religion, science, and the civil government. And the whole world is wondering after the beast. Tavit said the religious discourse, especially Pope Francis' encyclical, has had the impact and now it's time to follow up. The WCC, or the World Council of Churches, is an organization designed to bring all churches into harmony and alignment with Rome. But Pope Francis would not have just let the climate conference in Paris lose momentum. He knew there would be last-minute objections and resistance. He carefully watched what went on at the conference from Rome and was prepared to intervene if necessary. Cardinal Peter Turkson, who was at the conference, said that Pope Francis has deep trust that negotiators in Paris will get the job done. But just in case they don't, the Pope might possibly send a gentle message If it gets to a stalemate or whatever, he may utter a statement or make a comment or whatever, but he will refrain from exercising any coercive power on the things over there because that would not belong to his style, Turkson said at the Paris conference. Imagine that. The Pope had deep trust that the negotiators would get the job done. Now that's incredible, and it says volumes. Climate change summit after climate change summit had failed because of deep-seated political and practical problems between the nations at the negotiating table. Yet this time, the Pope had deep trust that they would do something. In other words, the Pope knew that he had so many negotiators in his camp already that he could actually have deep trust that they would sign an agreement. One does not have to think very deeply about this to clearly understand what Cardinal Turkson said. Turkson said that Pope Francis did not have to worry too much that a climate change agreement would not be reached. There is only one reason why that could be. Through his diplomatic back channels, he already knew that the key players and even those likely to oppose an agreement were prepared to sign an agreement within reasonable bounds. But if there was a stalemate, the Pope would only need to make a gentle statement to nudge any remaining world leaders over the line. That suggests that so many of the world leaders were already lined up behind the concept of an agreement that no one would want to hold up the historic moment and be shamed in public for doing so, particularly with so much grassroots support and attention to climate change. Joe Ware, a Protestant spokesman for Christian Aid, welcomed Turkson's remarks, saying such an action would give that final nudge to the negotiations. But apparently the Pope did a little intervention privately with a few world leaders when matters got bogged down toward the end. A couple of nations dug in their heels. For instance, Turkey felt that the UN requested too much of them, an issue resolved by a promise of the conference chairman to hear their appeal later. 
Nicaragua, however, was upset that there was some sort of mismatch in the agreement. That apparently triggered a phone call from the Pope himself to the Nicaraguan president to persuade him to approve the agreement in spite of some incongruities. Some leaders saw the rather obvious connection between the Pope's intervention and the UN agreement. Alison Doig, with the UK-based group Christian Aid, who was in Paris monitoring the talks, told Vatican Radio on December 11 that the Pope's role had been transformative in mobilizing religious support for stronger environmental protection. Climate summit after climate summit over the years has yielded no agreement, but because the Pope weighed in so strongly, publicly, and persistently on the matter, world leaders took notice and acted. The Climate Change Summit is a powerful testament to the global influence of Pope Francis and the Vatican on world politics and economics. The Pope is leading the world into globalism. No one can talk about climate change, environmental protection, or its rather broad social consequences without considering the Pope and the Vatican. This will elevate the Pope to be the moral and ethical leader of the world, which is exactly the place for which the papacy has been angling for more than half a century. But for the papacy, the climate agreement is not primarily about climate. And it's not really about the poor. It's about something far more grand, far more consequential. It's about universal papal control of the world. The Bible says that all the world wandered after the beast in Revelation 13, verse 3. And we've seen glimpses of it over the years, but now we can see it openly and powerfully. And we can understand how it's happening. Cardinal Turkson said that the Vatican has great interest in the success of the negotiations, namely getting the world to stop using carbon power by mid-century to save the earth. Why would there be such an interest? It's because... There are other aims. The Vatican wants to be the moral voice of the world. If the Pope can orchestrate something as significant as a climate agreement in, the, in Paris on the basis of her moral authority and influence, then she has certainly achieved a very important moment in her history. Her deadly wound is healed. And now all the world is under the managing influence of the papacy, at least in terms of the climate. But protecting the environment is only the beginning. Rome is getting the nations used to responding to her moral authority and thereby yielding to her preeminence in geopolitical affairs. After the Paris conference, the Jesuits in Britain jubilantly proclaimed, We have a deal! And another page of the same website said, The Jesuits added their voice to the COP21. Obviously, the Jesuits were very close to the negotiations. Why were Pope Francis and the Jesuits so involved in the Climate Change Summit? It's because the Pope sees the global agreement as his great opportunity to legitimize the Vatican as the moral guide of the new world order. His time has come. The agreement is the first truly global achievement in the 21st century. And since the Vatican was at the core of it, with the Pope taking a leading role in guiding it into existence, The papacy stands to gain a preeminent position of global influence. Even though the Jesuits admit that there are limitations and faults in the agreement, it is nevertheless the first of its kind and will lead to others for which they are jubilant. It was clearly papal influence negotiating, demanding, and cajoling the nations that led to the tipping point for the Paris Agreement. 
The environmental agreement is the first global supranational agreement of its kind, and all nations that signed it must give up some of their sovereignty in doing so. That's a crucial point. They must transfer some of their power to the United Nations eventually. The controlling power is the United Nations, which the Vatican views as inferior to itself and which the Vatican wants to control. The Vatican is using the United Nations and the United States as its political tools in laying the foundation for its ultimate goal, of which the climate agreement is but the foundation, a universal law linking the environment or creation to worship on the only day that Rome promotes for worship, Sunday. Keep in mind that the Pope's influential encyclical, Laudato Si, stresses Sunday worship as an important element in protecting the climate, even alluding to a law of Sunday rest for the environment. The Jesuit Pope is clearly now leading the New World Order partly from behind the scenes and partly out in front. Notice this statement from Great Controversy, page 235. Under various disguises, the Jesuits work their way into offices of state climbing up to be the counselors of kings and shaping the policy of nations. The Jesuits are certainly shaping the policies of nations all over the world through the climate deal. The deal signed by 195 nations is to cut global greenhouse gas emissions by about half of what will be necessary to stave off an increase in atmospheric temperatures of 2 degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The partly legally binding agreement will take effect in 2020. But the agreement is just the beginning. In order for it to come into force, 55 parties that produce 55% of the greenhouse gases must ratify the agreement. This will be difficult. But you can be sure that the Pope and the bishops will be working very hard behind the scenes on this process. Friends, this is the stuff of Bible prophecy. Without globalization, without the help of the United States, and without universal solidarity, Rome will never be able to insert herself in world affairs or press for universal Sunday laws. But now, in the name of climate change, Pope Francis has merged the plight of the vulnerable poor with degradation of the environment to affect a powerful argument and place the political and moral weight of the Vatican above global decision makers insisting on a moral dimension that provided them with the political instruction they needed and brought almost all the nations of the world into the agreement. What an achievement! For those who thought that the papal intervention in the rapprochement between the United States and Cuba was significant, the agreement on the environment is the masterstroke. And while the Vatican gloated in public after success of the new agreement between the United States and Cuba, The gloating over the Paris Agreement, however, is quietly measured inside the Vatican. Yet the world knows that Pope Francis and the Vatican achieved a core victory and that papal stature is greatly increased. The Pope praised the agreement and urged that the nations implement it as soon as possible. But the Pope was not alone in his praise. Political leaders like President Obama, President Hollande of France, and many others praised the agreement But even the Pope's colleagues in arms, evangelical leaders, also praised the agreement. Worldwide, there was euphoria when the agreement was announced. This had never been done before. It was an unprecedented achievement. Friends, can you see it? We're near the end of time. 
Your soul needs Christ's righteousness to cleanse you of all sin so that Christ can use you to oppose this powerful and overwhelming force with the unlimited power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you have not really thought that much about your salvation, perhaps this message has helped you realize that we are very near the end of time. And while we must not reform our lives from fear, we should prepare to receive the Holy Spirit in latter rain power. As Rome rises, so must God's people. If not you, whom? And if not now, when? May God bless you and keep you, is my prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the message we've heard today concerning the rise of the papacy to world-class power. Thank you that we have Jesus to stand by our side in the time of trouble. But Father, we need your protection. We need your Holy Spirit to purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May your spirit thrive in our souls today. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you've heard is called Be Thou My Vision, played by Henry Higgins. It's on a CD recorded with other beautiful hymns called Near to the Heart. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. If you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the Near to the Heart CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Africa, Uganda, and the Central African Republic wonder after. Pope Francis visited three nations in Africa in late November, Kenya, Uganda, and the war-torn Central African Republic, or CAR. He had been invited by the heads of state and the local bishops in each of the three countries. In Kenya, the Pope spoke of traditional values and urged young people to shape the future society on inclusiveness and respect for human dignity. He also urged Kenyans to work for peace, especially between Muslims and Christians. In Uganda, the Pope spoke against greedy, wealthy minorities that hoard wealth, honored Catholic martyrs, and urged unity and compassion. While in the CAR, he visited one of the most dangerous neighborhoods on the planet and appealed to Christians and Muslims to end the bloodshed that has killed thousands in the last three years. The papal visit occurred during a surge of violence, but was protected by an unprecedented show of military force with over 3,000 UN peacekeeping troops, armored vehicles, and machine guns throughout the PK-5 neighborhood. The Pope spoke at a mosque and said, Christians and Muslims are brothers and sisters. Those who claim to believe in God must also be men and women of peace. Healing rifts between Christian and Muslim communities was a theme of Francis used throughout the three-nation tour. The violence in the CAR started in 2013 and has killed thousands and displaced hundreds of thousands. Together we must say no to hatred, to revenge, and to violence, particularly that violence which is perpetrated in the name of religion or of God himself. God is peace. Salam, he said. In all three countries, the Pope said masses for thousands upon thousands, many from neighboring countries that traveled great distances to hear them. And all the world wondered, Revelation 13, verse 3. Next, German news editors manipulate public opinion toward a third world war. Following the terrorist attacks in Paris, German media have started talking of a new world war. The Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung Daily wrote that the West is in a third world war. Tagesspiegel said the West, in fact, the entire planet, has currently been forced into a third world war. After 14 years of war on terror, terrorism is stronger than ever. The deterioration of the Arab Muslim world is the beginning of the decivilization process, said the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. The Muslim belt of crisis extending from Pakistan to Morocco, which has provoked the massive wave of refugees coming to Europe, has a lawlessness which is challenging for the West to handle, and no state despotism has taken power. 
So Deutsche Zeitung said Syria and company are the wholesale exporters of trouble. While the West has been working with its Arab Gulf partners to execute regime change in Middle Eastern countries, it has provided tactical support to jihadis and has laid the groundwork for these groups to become stronger. And as the West trivializes its responsibility for the havoc in a growing number of Muslim countries, there are more calls for the West to intensify its policies in the Middle East. But stability cannot be imposed on the societies of the Muslim world from the outside. It has to be done locally. Meanwhile, some media outlets are even calling for domestic repression in the West, saying that the Bundeswehr should take on the task of protecting endangered streets, use police and intelligence services more, and be better equipped in an even more tightly coordinated network. They are also calling for the Internet to be absolutely placed under stronger surveillance, and freedoms which should be protected will be curtailed, said one of the editors of the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. The Germans have nothing against a friendly demeanor at the head of their government, however. Now they want and need a mean demeanor. The manipulation of German public opinion to habitually think of world war is not shared by all, however. Standing alone among the media pack is the German Handelsblatt, a business journal. The West shares the blame for the hostile climate between the cultures, said its editor Gerhard Steingart. The wars in Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq, waged under false pretenses and therefore in violation of international law, alone accounts for over 800,000 dead. Then Steingart added, the majority of these victims were peaceful Muslims, not terrorists. Military escalation does not bring peace. It only spawns suicide bombers, he said. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Matthew 24, verse 21. Next, Catholic and Lutheran progress toward unity. After 500 years of separation, and after many attempts by the Catholic Church to bring Lutherans back into Rome, including a 30-year war, the establishment of the Jesuits, whose mission is to undo all that Protestantism has done, and other tactics, the Roman, Catholic, and Lutheran churches are now contemplating taking communion together. The Council of the General Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, the ELCIC, discussed the commemoration in 2017 of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation on November 14. They had taken an extremely important step the previous month. On October 30, in jointly issuing a document entitled Declaration on the Way, Church, Ministry, and Eucharist, they called for the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity and the Lutheran World Federation to create a process and timetable to address outstanding issues between them. They are also seeking more opportunities to take communion together. Non-Roman Catholics are occasionally, though rarely, given communion by Catholic priests in certain circumstances. If that comes to fruition, we've reached a major, major milestone. The increasing rapprochement between Lutherans and Catholics in recent years has symbolically encouraged the leaders of both sides the release of Declaration on the Way is one sign. Another is a recent tweet by Pope Francis on Martin Luther's birthday, November 10, in which he used the phrase Semper Reformanda, a clear allusion to the early Lutheran rallying cry. Ecclesia Semper Reformanda Est, 
meaning the church must always be reformed. The tweet warmed the hearts of Lutheran ecumenists. Another sign that reproachment is near is the fact that Lutherans and Roman Catholics are labeling the events planned for 2017 as a commemoration of the beginning of the Reformation, not a celebration. This is a choice of words that places guilt on the Lutherans for being loyal to the Bible. It delighted me enormously to hear the Holy Father use the words, said Reverend Andre Laverne, assistant to the bishop, ecumenical and interfaith ELCIC. That was not an accident. There are no such accidents, he added with a smile. Another anniversary in 2017 will mark the beginning of the ecumenical dialogue between the Roman Catholic and Lutheran churches, which started in the 1960s after Second Vatican Council that initiated the ecumenical movement. Described as a new spirit that swept through the Catholic Church and led it to open its windows and doors to a world beyond itself and invite conversation. The ELCIC commemoration is very much built on the ecumenical dialogue proffered by the Vatican, Laverne said. The discussion also centered around the landmark Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, the JDDI, a key foundation agreement in which Roman Catholic, Lutheran, ecumenical dialogue and understanding was released in 1999. The document declares that Catholics and Lutherans have reached consensus on the basic ideas around the Doctrine of Justification which was at the center of the separation at the Reformation. Previously, the World Methodist Council had adopted the theological statement and the Anglican Consultative Council is contemplating a similar gesture, which it will discuss at its meeting in Lusaka, Zambia in 2016. Who knows what tomorrow will bring in a place where 500 years after the Reformation, Lutherans and Catholics are talking about communion together, said Laverne. The Roman Church now presents a fair front to the world, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. She's clothed herself in Christ-like garments, but she is unchanged. Every principle of the papacy that existed in past ages exists today. The doctrines devised in the darkest ages are still held. Let none deceive themselves. The papacy that the Protestants are now so ready to honor is the same that ruled the world in the days of the Reformation, when men of God stood up at the peril of their lives to expose her iniquity. She possesses the same pride and arrogant assumption that lorded it over kings and princes and claimed the prerogatives of God. Her spirit is no less cruel and despotic now than when she crushed out human liberty and slew the saints of the Most High. That's Great Controversy, page 571. Next, the EU and Vietnam sign a free trade agreement. The European Union and Vietnam signed a free trade agreement after two years of intense negotiations, which will remove virtually all tariffs between them. The EU and Vietnam can do great things together, said EU Commission Head Jean-Claude Juncker. Trade between the European Union and Vietnam, a communist country, has grown to 28 billion euros in the last 10 years. EU Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström called the deal a new model for trade policy with developing countries. The agreement is the EU's first with a developing country. The EU signed a similar agreement with Singapore last year. Both Singapore and Vietnam are both members of the 10-member Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or the ASEAN group. It's a regional trade bloc. 
the EU is holding separate talks with two other ASEAN members, Malaysia and Thailand. The EU is also negotiating a free trade agreement with Japan. Brussels and South Korea already have a free trade agreement. Our ultimate goal is to have a region-to-region -region agreement, said Malmström in August. Free trade agreements between regions are an advanced step toward global political unity. It follows regionalization, in which trade agreements are made between nations within a region. The ASEAN group of nations and the EU are both regionalized areas of the world, though the ASEAN region is not yet a political union. Nevertheless, a free trade agreement between the two regions would be a major step toward a supranational global government. Globalization is important because it leads to religious globalization after political, economic, and education and law enforcement integration is in place. The merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Revelation 18, verse 13. Globalization, which is in the interest of the Vatican's plan to become queen of the earth, see Revelation 18, verse 7, is beneficial for the merchants of the earth who are collaborating in globalization. Globalization will make it possible to enact a universal Sunday law. It all starts with trade agreements. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, Revelation 13, verse 8. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.